0: Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College online journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program.
1: Hello and welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Jacqueline Witt, professor of strategy at the U.S. Army War College and the War Room podcast editor. Thanks for joining us for another episode. One of the things that we talk about in the realm of professional military education is the importance of ongoing education for military officers. And the different military services, the Army, the Air Force, the Navy, the Marine Corps, all have different ways of sort of managing this problem. My own career has been spent in professional military education uh, really really since it started. And one of the first places I was at was the Air War College uh, down in Maxwell Air Force Base in Montgomery, Alabama. And that is a a place where the Air Force has really consolidated lots of its education programs. And so I've asked uh, Dr. John Torino, who is the department chair of the Department of Air Power at Air Command and Staff College, again located in Montgomery, Alabama, to join me in the studio today to talk about... um, some of the history of Air Force, professional military education, and the training of its military officers. And he's going to tell us a a sort of historical story and think about some contemporary things. John's a retired uh, Air Force officer and has been working in PME for much of his career and also now as a civilian for about 10 years and has a Ph.D. in history. That's an important, uh, important piece of his bio, too. So, John, welcome to War Room.
0: It's great to be here.
1: All right, so if you look at people who are teaching at the Air Command and Staff College these days, uh, civilians and military, you might notice, astute observers might notice a new um, piece of flair that they're, that they're sporting. Um, so there's a pin uh, that, this, that the civilians have, and there's a patch um, for the military officers, and it says that it's the old Air Corps Tactical School. Patch or pin, um, so that's the that's the story I want you to tell us is is how how have we sort of resurrected this old piece of Air Force history.
0: So uh, basically, um, when I uh, took over the department, uh, I thought one of the things we needed was kind of an identity to you know have a good to have a good unit. You know, you have to have good morale. You have to have things that that people are proud of and make it work. Toward that end some of the guys that worked for me really got into the the history of, of what we were doing. And these are military officers who really weren't much in history before this. And when they found out that back in the 1930s, Air Force officers who were assigned instructor duty at the Air Corps Tactical School, which was the only sort of PME that the the Air Corps had during the interwar period, and it was at Maxwell uh, after about 1931, moved from Langley Air Force Base to Maxwell Air Force Base, they found out that these instructors would wear these little, literally, if you're an animal house person, <laughs> pledge pins on their uniform, the little blue pins that said "Air," said Axe, which is short you know, for the Air Corps Tactical School instructor, A little prop and wings on it. And they thought this was really cool. So being pilots, the first thing they thought of was, well, let's make it a patch. So we kind of had a morale patch. The, the Air Force allows you to wear these kind of uh, patches on Fridays, typically. And the rest of the, the week, you wear a regular patch that's sort of you know uniform specific and follows regulations. But the morale patches can be a little different than that. So they came up with a version of it. And they really quickly went viral. Like they saw my guys were wearing it, <laughs> other guys in the building wanted it. And then the guys from the headquarters wanted it. And all of a sudden, everybody had these. Now we were selling these, it kind of add money to our morale fund, but they really became a point of pride. And uh, we started giving them to some of our guest speakers, you know, and, and thanks for them coming to do it. Kind of like some places you'll get a coin, which we also had a department coin, which was different because the rest of the school didn't have it. And then the the commandant of our school started giving our coin to people. And one of the more notable ones on that was uh, General Casey came down and was speaking in front of the students, and he got our coin, and he was really impressed that it had a bottle opener feature on it too. So it was not just decorative, but practical. Practical, absolutely. (laughs) And and so so then we were kind of running out of these patches, and the old uh, pin and patch were uh, blue, blue background with gold lettering. And this was just about the time the Air Force was shifting to new – uh, utility uniforms with the ocp and so i said to the guys i said well we need to order the blue ones because the aviators you know pilots will wear those but you know the rest of the guys are going to need patches now too because the ocp has more patch stuff on it than the old air force uniforms utilities had and i said so we need to get them in the correct ocp color and the so subdued colors and subdued color so find out what the right color is so they did some cursory research like many of us do and uh, we like came up they googled up, it Yeah, they Googled it, and they kind of called somebody or something. But we ended up just defaulting to a different color. So we got uh, sort of black ones with kind of a more subdued uh, gold, maybe. And we started selling those, too. And, of course, those went like hotcakes because not only could pilots wear them if they wanted, but all the support officers could wear those, too. And then um, the guys who are running my... um, my, my morale fund my snack bar this
1: is very important <laughs> this is, this in is the Air real Force.
0: Air Force stuff yes this is vital to morale <laughs> the most important officer that works for me is my snack officer and and, and surprisingly it's um, rather competitive to who gets the job and they've done some amazing things the last couple of years and our snack bar is essentially the snack bar for the whole building in some fashion it really has become that so uh, they they were kind of realizing there was kind of a marketing opportunity because the civilians didn't have it and they really wanted to get back to what the original pin looked like in some sense. So they figured out how to get one of these on order and literally this week we just got the first batch of these and you know po- I posted a- one of them on Facebook and all of a sudden people are posting all these memes of guys throwing money at you. Take my money. <laughs> and, and, and there was almost a line uh, outside yeah. my snack officer's office on Monday morning when, when these things to, came to work. To get,
1: the, to get the pen. So yeah, so for morale, for identity, mm-hmm. this is, I think, a really important piece of military culture, certainly, 100%. to feel like you're part of a unit, to feel like you're part of a team and have that visual identity as well. What what was the Air Air Corps Tactical School? What, what does it mean?
0: So the really important part of this, in another sense, was not just the morale, but exactly what you're getting at. Uh, The Air Corps Tactical School was the first place um, in the United States Air Force or its predecessors, the the, uh, Army Air Corps, where there was an intellectual component to what air power was going to be. You know, it started with the Air Service Tactical School, and and it was supposed to be about getting mid-career officers or just below that, like captains, to be prepared for greater leadership in the Air Corps and, you know, to start teaching them about more parts about air power than they might have actually experienced Mm -hmm. so far. By the 1930s, it became much more sophisticated in what it was doing in that it became the crucible for where the thinking about strategic bombing as an independent mission for the Air Force, what would ultimately be the Air Force, was really thought through and analyzed and given intellectual heft to to what the idea was. And this is kind of interesting because it wasn't supposed to be that. Everything they were supposed to do had to be in accordance with army doctrine and they were doing that and they're and their syllabi were looked at and, you know, their lectures were, were vetted. But at the same time, they were laying the foundation for, for this uh, other way of, of using air power in, in a different form than most of the rest of the Army wanted it to be used. Yeah.
1: Really a new way of, of thinking about air power and what it can accomplish. It seems like there's a couple of, of things at play, right? So the interwar period is important. Uh, the, the fact that this is happening in the 1930s, uh, as air power, as, as people are figuring out what air power can do and how to modify its uses from the First World War. Um, but it's also at Maxwell, right? Correct. So what does the, the move to Alabama do for the Air Corps Tactical School and, and air power thinking more broadly?
0: So uh, I would say there's a couple things that happened because of that. So uh, originally it was at Langley Air Force Base, which is still a premier air force base for United States Air Force even until today, and ironically, one of uh, a number of Air Force bases that are actually named after civilians. Uh, but Maxwell Air Force Base in Montgomery is, you know, named like most other bases are after a, an aviator who, who perished, uh, usually in a plane crash, uh, in some way, shape, or form. Uh, and when the, when the Air Corps Tactical School was moved to Maxwell, it came at a time when there was an increase in budget for the Air Corps, at the expense of the rest of the army. And so essentially, Maxwell became a showpiece Air Force base. Uh, it has a certain architectural style because the Corps of Engineers created this sort of uh, um, French revivalist kind of uh, architecture. Uh, it's got a lot of tile, red tile roofs on, on a lot of the buildings. The, the housing uh, there is historic. Uh, it was laid out in a, in a different fashion as a unified whole, which is something that the Air Force and the other services I think have embraced lately is that you're, you have to have an architectural plan for your bases. So there's a utility section of the base, an industrial section, as it were, where the flight line was, where the, 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 the hangars, which still exist today, these Art Deco hangars for maintenance and, 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 and all the things that are associated with the airplanes. And then there's a housing side that's on the other side that's laid out by Fred, Frederick Law Olmsted. Uh, inspired architecture. So it's very green and it's designed to be like a parkway. And in between is where the Air Corps Tactical School was put uh, in in the building that is now the base headquarters. And so what you did was you ended up gathering all the best officers in the Air Corps. Uh, This was a feather in your cap to go down there and Mm -hmm. be on the faculty. You had to go through as a student. Um, The statistics out of World War II are something like, Um, Of say five hundred, the five hundred top generals in the Air Corps, um, virtually all of them. You know, we're talking like four hundred and ninety-five went through um, the the Air Corps Tactical School at one point. Um, And so, you know, my my stats are probably a little off, just coming off the top of my head. But you know, they're they're pretty close to that. Close enough for government work, as it were. So, um, so it gives you an idea of the impact that the school had. And uh, a lot of historians uh, who've looked at you know the development of the Air Force and strategic bombing. They tend to focus on the fact that this was the the main thing that was going on at uh, Maxwell at the time was thinking about how to do mm-hmm. the industrial web theory of strategic bombing right. that is unique to American air power.
1: When I think about Maxwell and living in Alabama, <laughs> um, it even when I was there in you know 2012 to 2016, uh, it's not the easiest place to get to. It feels a little bit more isolated, uh, certainly from the D.C. area, certainly from like the churn of the Pentagon and, and other places. And, and so it's not as close as Carlisle. It's not as close or as, Pl- Langley. as Langley. Mm-hmm. And so do you, do you think that matters? Is it, is it actually isolated from some of the other things that are happening
0: uh, so, I think in some sense that that may have been almost intentional when it was first established you know that that there were, there were political factors that were involved in it. Uh, Lister Hill, who was a famous uh, senator, ultimately a senator from Alabama, uh, this was sort of his baby getting the base there and the, and the money that flowed and the jobs that came with that mm-hmm. in the thirties um, and I think there was a sense you know let 's put these guys a little further away from the rest yeah. of, of Washington, even though. You know, Leavenworth was sort of the centerpiece for army schooling at the time, and it's much further away uh, from Washington than than even Maxwell is. But there was, I think, a a counterpoint to this, which is the the sense that air power, you know, aviation was going to close distances and unite, unite mm-hmm. people even closer. So, you know, getting to Maxwell by air on a direct flight is really not that hard in in a sense. And the irony today is that until very recently, we didn't have direct, direct commercial flight. flights from <laughs> Montgomery to, yeah. to Washington, D.C., but now we do, and it actually has shrunk the distance uh, incredibly in the time, and it allows us even to get speakers more readily because it right. used to be it's like a two-day thing to come to Maxwell. Yeah, it, was,
1: it was, in fact... You could, I, we would joke that you could get to London from New York faster than you could get to, to Montgomery. Um, <laughs> much. But this is so. Th- I mean, the, the, but this continues to be one of the Maxwell continues to be a sort of intellectual home for for the Air Force uh, for generating ideas about air power for thinking about um, the role of the Air Force within national security and national defense. Um, at the same time, the role of professional military education in the Air Force and within the services more broadly, like the, the role of the command and staff colleges, of the war colleges, um, is, is changing. And we, we don't see the same uh, maybe prestige attached to instructing at, at PME institutions. Um, there's all sorts of opinions about why that is and, and what we might do to, to change it. Do you, do you en- how would you envision um, sort of Maxwell and its current... I guess it, its current sort of conception and iteration, um, contributing to intellectual and professional development within the Air Force.
0: So um, Maxwell, as a whole, has a very vital role right now. Um, the, the the current Secretary of the Air Force, Heather Wilson, has a PhD. She's you know been a president of universities. She's going to leave the Air, that position and go be a, a chancellor or president, I believe, at um, at the University of Texas El Paso. So she's very much big on education and, and, and what it means and, and, and kind of wading through the, the kind of statistics and things that get thrown through. One of the first meetings we had with her last year when she came down was she was very, very interested in, in how we picked our instructors, what, what they were teaching, what, what our accreditation was, what it really meant. Um, and so there's an initiative in the Air Force now, in spite of talking about this for the better part of 10 or 15 years, to actually value instructor duty again and to you know, make it prominent on people's records and pick people and, and and board it, essentially, to pick the best instructors. And we're kind of, uh, at the Air Command Staff College, on the leading edge of that in one sense, but the rest of Maxwell is kind of a, a part of that. So the current Air, Air University commander, General Cotton, um, recognizes that it's been very difficult to get people to Maxwell because of the geographic issues. There's lots of problems with public education in the city of montgomery Um, we have one of the finest high schools our magnet school in the country but at the same time if you're not in the magnet school it's it's very very bad Uh, so there are a lot of officers potentially as instructors or students and even civilian faculty who have been a hard sell (laughs) yeah well they've been offered jobs uh, or or been told they're coming and they've either refused uh, looked elsewhere for employment or um, come without their families and there's an increasing number of, of officers do that. And so part of this, everybody believes, is the educational issue. And it's ironic in a bad way that you know the center of Air Force education, which has contributed so much over the last 75 years or so to the life of Montgomery, and you know there's a lot of transplanted people like myself who live there, my daughter, my youngest daughter is essentially a native Alabamian. I've been at Maxwell mm-hmm. for so long in, in that sense, um, that have contributed to the intellectual growth and everything that goes on in, in Montgomery. And yet the public school system is failing. And it makes it very difficult to juxtapose how can this be in a place that values yeah. education so much. So when I say we're on the leading edge at the Air Command Staff College, you know, one of the things we've been really doing in the last five years is increasing the quality of our faculty. Um, we are, in a sense, a lodestone for uh, the intellectual development of the Air Force Officer Corps because we have the most students. They have the most opportunity to, to contribute to the Air Force after they graduate and they will end up making a difference in that sense just out of sheer numbers and if the quality is there then it can really enhance that difference they can make whereas the war college you know is, is a little smaller and the statistics are about 30 to 50 percent of them are gone after you know retired yeah. after three years they're, after yeah they're,
1: they're much gone. it's much later in their careers it's a really different uh, really different environment exactly um, different yeah. missions different different student population so I, I, I've loved working in PME. I think there's really exciting work happening. Um, the, the students are interesting. They're not that different sometimes from students everywhere else, but what are some of the, what are some of the sort of exciting things that you're seeing within, within PME and within your, your world?
0: So, so the most exciting things, you know, at our particular school that are permeating out through the rest of, uh, of the Air Force educational establishment at Maxwell, um, higher quality faculty. We have, We've been on a push to uh, hire much more qualified civilian faculty, so we have a lot more PhDs. Uh, my favorite phrase to describe this is, we are not your commanders, Air Command Staff <laughs> College. Um, we have real rigor in our curriculum. We have real instructors. One of the things that we've, we've done uh, in the last few years is we've created a course where most of our courses uh, involve some level of faculty development because part of our mission is to take Air Force officers and turn them into instructors and to help them develop intellectually too and that requires uh, a lot of a lot of faculty development to get them ready to teach these kind of courses well when you have uh, as we do now about 50 percent of our faculty are civilian phds we can take advantage of that and we have courses core courses that are taught only by phds So there's no faculty development for that, because this is essentially what those of us who've gotten those degrees were trained to do, just like at a regular Mm -hmm. graduate school or or undergraduate program, we would go and develop the syllabus and go teach the course. And we wouldn't need all the kinds of uh, support mechanisms that we have for people who are just learning as they're doing it. So that's made a big difference in terms of uh, what the students expect from what we do. Um, At the same time, the quality of our military faculty, which had gotten pretty low due to the demands of the war and other things where we were being assigned non-volunteers to come and teach right. people who didn't want to be there and didn't want to teach either and would tell the students that it's oh, a really front.
1: difficult sort of <laughs> combination of uh, of factors
0: yeah exactly and you know teaching requires some degree of passion it requires some some degree of of fluidity of mind and and other things in the seminar environment to make it work and if you just don't want to engage in that uh you're going to have there's going to be a little big problem it's not
1: going to be fun for anybody there's not going to be a whole lot of learning
0: and 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 that defeats the whole purpose of everything so what we started doing was telling the air force the personnel system no we're not going to take those officers and we need to get higher quality officers and some of the the leadership of air university in particular general Quast, when he was there before he became the air education and training commander he backed us to the hilt on this sort of stuff too and so we got an increase in quality of our officers. We created new programs so that some of our graduates, just like in the days of the Air Corps Tactical School, you would come as a student and uh, select numbers would graduate and be put on the faculty mm-hmm. as a premier position. Like, you know, we can't give you wing command or squadron command coming out of here, but what we can do is give you this position, which is a
1: great assignment.
0: Great assignment, and virtually equivalent to that when, when the wards mm-hmm. look at that. And this is, I think, one of the going to be the outcomes of what Secretary Wilson has been trying to do. We're going to elevate PME and instructor duty. It's going to help the Air Force Academy, which has had similar problems getting faculty because our personnel management has been structured towards you know producing people who can go downrange in Afghanistan and Iraq, which is vital and important, but also at the same time at the expense of looking at career broadening in a holistically better sense for what it does for development of officers. And so the quality of our military instru- faculty has gotten incredible. So about five, six years ago, I had no rated officers in my department. So, we're supposed to teach air power, and we have nobody who flies or had flown aircraft in in the Air Force. And, you know, this is a minor point in one sense, but a major point for credibility. And now, all my, uh, virtually all of my uh, fellow B officers, the ones who are going to stay on as sort of a fellowship and teach with us, are all rated. I have. I have some of the finest you know, operators that I could ever wish, to, and they're really good instructors at the same time. Mm-hmm. So they help us on the civilian side with credibility because they've been in the airplane, they've done the missions there's a, a There's a level.
1: combination of academic expertise, mm-hmm. practical expertise, um, that really I think is, is essential for professional military education. It's not purely an academic environment, nor is it a purely military environment. You no, really 100%. Have, uh, the, the, have both and work together.
0: Yeah, the best example you can say it's we're more like a pre-professional school, like a law school or a medical school in the sense of that. And we need practitioners to help us on that part of it. And we need the academic side to help with the intellectual development and, and the, mm-hmm. the way to look at problems in a different way. You know, the way we kind of characterize what we've been doing is develop, we're trying to develop habits of mind and patterns of inquiry for the students. And so we need faculty that can, can do that kind of stuff. And uh, I think we've come a long way towards making that happen, and our faculty is really really strong for that sort of stuff. And you know, getting back to the the genesis of this in a <laughs> sense, the pins and patches are just an example of this in a sense where we're using the cultural heritage of the Air Force, Maxwell specifically, yeah. and we are kind of getting people excited about what we do in a way that harkens back to the intellectual tradition that that many people, you know kind of disregard that the air force has but it's actually been very strong you know having having people think about what is it you need to do to be effective to meet national security goals with military power and specifically revolutionary military power that was the kind of aircraft that were being developed in the 1930s that we're going to need for space and cyber and integrating into multi domains that, that, that are going to be essential for us to be successful in in the conflicts of the future that hopefully we won't have to do, but we've got to be prepared for. It.
1: And then that space um, of professional military education, of space set aside, time set aside, for professional intellectual development is is really critical, um, both for professionalization but also for coming up with new ideas, uh, new ways of of thinking about American national security, about defense, Mm -hmm. about the military enterprise. Uh, John, thanks so much for joining us on War Room, fellow kindred spirit in the (laughs) PME world, Um, and I'll have to talk to you about getting one of these uh, very special pins. Maybe I can...
0: Oh, definitely. There's one coming to you. All right. All right. Thanks so much. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this podcast and want to hear even more great content, subscribe to A Better Piece, the War Room Podcast, at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu and have a great day.